It's July 26th, 2021. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode 130 of Rook. Hope you're keeping well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. Salam Dustan Aziz Durud. Hello to you from Toronto, Canada. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms, rookmedia.com. We are on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. Hello, Groovy Shaya. Hi, hi. Hi, Captain Reza. Hello, sir. Uh, we're doing things a little different today. Yes. We're going to uh, get straight to the subject matter. And, um, you know, if you're not Iranian, uh, or actually even more specifically, uh, you might be Iranian, but if you're not someone who follows Persian media in Persian, uh, you'd be forgiven for not knowing that there is a new heartbreaking crisis happening in Iran. Protests, uh, shootings, this this time primarily located in the southwestern Khuzestan region. I, I mean, of course, there are people speaking out, uh, Iranians, in social media. Uh, we had a large demonstration of folks here in Toronto last Friday. A bunch of us were there. And there have been similar gatherings around the uh, Iranian diaspora and, of course, in Iran. But um, folks might be asking, what is going on? Well, let me put this uh, in extremely simplistic, but I think accurate terms. Here's a quick descriptor. Iran, and particularly the region of Khuzestan, including cities like Ahvaz and Abadan, is suffering terrible water shortages. Now, these water shortages, which can affect the basic needs of water for drinking or hygiene, have been caused, and not to mention for farmers as well, for agriculture, have been caused at least partly by chronic mismanagement and corruption by the state, the Iranian government. And then in dark trademark fashion, when ordinary folks have raised their voices to clamor for those most basic of living conditions, there has been a clampdown, a crackdown by the same state where protesters have been shot and killed just for asking for water, basically. Uh, this is a sad and maddening pattern that is uh, also not entirely surprising. So on this edition of Rook, we want to spend the whole episode talking about this since it is not appearing, really, in Western media in English. Have you seen this? Uh, no. It's no. kind of weird, right? It is bizarre. It's just, to me, that's a true testament that the size of a tragedy has nothing to do with whether or not it deserves media attention. I mean... This is crazy. People are in d desperate need of basic human need, water, and are getting beaten up, shot at, and there is absolutely zero coverage in the Western media. I, I don't it, understand. You know, we cover you. We see you see things correctly in the in the Western media, like the George Floyd situation, um, which in fact the whole world knew about. Yeah. Um, but then you kind of think, well, where? People are being shot for nothing. Where, where, where is the coverage on this? Is it just that Iran doesn't matter anymore? Or we're used to this, or uh, and and where the media will be focused on 
something someone might have tweeted 20 years ago <laughs> rather than this dire situation that you would hope that people would talk about. So anyway, we want to try and do this here uh, in English and uh, get some real context for how the crisis emerged, what the water situation actually is in Iran, what the mechanics of the dysfunction uh, are, the, the incompetence, the mismanagement, and, and how to explain and understand the regime's brutal and bloody response this time. So for that, we are turning to two people with perspectives that are both valuable and born from years of experience. Kaveh Madani, the popular scientist and academic and writer who's perhaps best positioned to explain exactly what's going on in Iran with respect to water and the environment. Uh, not only is he a scientist, he was briefly uh, in government, uh, the, the head of the environment, basically vice yes. president of the, the environment in Iran uh, in that harrowing year that he was there. Uh, and he knows of what, of what he speaks if he's talking about mismanagement or the water supply or, as he calls it, water bankruptcy, mm -hmm. which uh, has now become more part of the lexicon. But yeah. when he was saying that two or three years ago, people were kind of going, well, this guy's being alarmist, you know. So he's somebody that I really want to speak to on this. Kavim Adani, and then a little later, Amir Tahiri, the veteran journalist and editor in Paris who's been uh, covering Iranian affairs for decades, including as editor-in-chief of Kehan newspaper from 1972 to 1979 in Iran. We're coming to you on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and CastBox, and if you want to see some visuals with Rook, uh, and you're not looking at us on YouTube or, or uh, Instagram, you can check us out on social media. Switch over to YouTube or Instagram right now. On all of our platforms, it's at Rook Media. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and Persian, check us out on Telegram. Uh, again, you can link to all those platforms from our main hub, rookmedia.com, where you can also become a patron of our program. We crowdsource uh, to keep this show going and... Um, uh, keep our mission alive to build this audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. So if you're a regular listener or you like what you hear, rookmedia.com, go and press the red button there that says support us. And for $5 or $10 a month or more, if you wish, you can support rookmedia.com. Even a minimal amount means a lot to us. Hey, a big thank you for this edition of Rook to myterms.ca myterms.ca and Arash and Anita Fazelipur. They are life partners. They're business partners. They're the founders of myterms.ca. This is a mortgage company based here in Ontario, Canada. They're both born in Iran, but grew up in Canada and the States. They decided to go into business and life together almost 20 years ago, and they have a, a really good record with myterms.ca, focusing on the service aspect of the mortgage business. Uh, they are very well reviewed online, and they make it a big priority to give back to the Persian community as well. Arash and Anita Fazelipur and myterms.ca. Check out myterms.ca for any and all aspects of your mortgage needs. Uh, in the coming days on Rook, Reza, Dr. Sheila Nazarian, yeah. the um, uh, amazing. Uh, amazingly successful plastic surgeon yeah. and Netflix star and somebody who's really um, paying back to her community in various ways, the Iranian community, the Jewish community, Dr. Sheila Nazarian joining us, Hamid Saidi, mm -hmm. who is the Grammy award-winning Santour yes. player wow. with Opium Moon, Ali Parsa, the uh, Iranian-British uh, engineer and the founder of Babylon Health, 
uh, and just a, a really inspirational guy from going from refugee to billionaire. Uh, Ali Parsa, Tara Tiba, the uh, Iranian-Australian uh, singer-songwriter, and Alex Bacardi and Vahid Amiri uh, for a special edition of Rook on Persians and Cars. Ooh. The two things that go together. And in and. Persians, cats, and cars. That's right. Uh, we got a lot of letters about our episodes last week with Behzad Balur and Kayvon Zand, separate episodes. Uh, we're going to get to those letters on Thursday. The fabulous Keon is um, currently on uh, her extended birthday uh, <laughs> holiday. So she will, uh, she'll join us, uh, I think, from where she is, which yeah. is uh, somewhere in the Caribbean or something, on, on Thursday, and we'll get to the letters of the week then and more. But let's now get to our episode for today. Explaining Khuzestan. Well, when my first guest today spent years talking about water bankruptcy, as he coined it, in Iran, he was sometimes accused of being dramatic or overstating the case. But sadly, scientist and activist Kaveh Madani was all too prophetic in his expectations of what can and will happen in today's Iran when it comes to natural resources, and in particular, water. It's become all too real in regions like Khuzestan right now. Kaveh was born in Iran and first left for his studies at the age of 22 and went on to become an acclaimed expert on environment and water supply. As many of you listening will know, and as we discussed when he was last on Rook last year, Kaveh spent a harrowing year serving as Iran's deputy vice president for the environment in 2017 and 2018 before he had to literally escape with his life. Since then, he has continued to emerge as an acclaimed globally recognized academic and speaker when it comes to Iran and particularly environmental issues. In 2019, he was selected by the American Geophysical Union to receive the Hydrologic Sciences Early Career Award. He's won a bunch of other awards as well. Kaveh is a writer, a professor, currently a Henry Hart Rice Senior Fellow at Yale University and a visiting professor at Imperial College London. And right now, Kaveh Madani joins me from Toronto, Canada today. Hello, sir. Hi, Gian. Uh, thanks for having me here. Thanks for being back on the program. I, I wish there were better circumstances for when you get invited to go on programs, but I guess you're, unfortunately, there's there's crises, and, and I, I do want to get to this water bankruptcy in your prophetic words, but first, Kavajan, the, the news coming out of Iran, and in particular, Khuzestan in the last couple of weeks has been shocking for some of us, saddening, but let me ask you from the outset, how surprised are you? Oh, um, I'm not surprised at all. This is one of those rare moments that I wish my science were wrong. Um, it's really sad to see this situation and, and watch from abroad and not be able to do anything for the people who are suffering. You know, I want to get to some basic context from you in explaining how we got into this situation. So uh, if you'll forgive me, and if the folks listening who know a lot about this will forgive me for these ele elemental questions, but first things first, when there is a crisis that involves a lack of water, especially, say, uh, in a Middle Eastern country, you know, there's I'm thinking there's a tendency to think, well, this is an arid land and this is probably an endemic problem. So on this question of being water bankrupt, does Iran have enough water to serve its population in general? 
Well, I mean, there is a saying that um, nowhere in the world there is a shortage of water, but everywhere there is a sh- shortage of cheap water. The question is, what do you need your water for, and what 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 are you going to do with it, and how you know how much money do you want to um, make out of it, and and what sort of service you want to provide? Um, the Iran has enough water to to satisfy the thirst of its population, and it has enough water to um, you know have a very active and productive industry. Um, but doesn't have enough water to, at the same time, have uh, to become self-sufficient in agriculture. This doesn't mean that Iran cannot produce its, its strategic food. You know, wheat can still be produced, but you know, Iran needs to think, rethink about producing eggplant and 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 cucumber and, and um, tomatoes with you know with valuable water. For sure, Iran's water availability uh, you know naturally is much less than the average of the world but this is something that you know has been integral to iran this is uh, this is the identity of iran and it has been there forever we decided to live there we decided to expand we decided to develop and we should have considered this natural income um, as I say, like your, your in- annual income can be $40,000 and you still can become bankrupt and your annual income can be $2 million and you become bankrupt. Right, the, the, right. You know, if you plan wrong, then you can be- become bankrupt. This is the situation we are facing. Indeed, it's a post-crisis state that water water expenditure has been much more than the available water and you know, this is the result. Okay, so let's get into the planning wrong, as you just uh, put it. Why the water isn't getting to the people. Um, you, you know, we can be highly critical um, of the current state of Iran, the, the, the current government of Iran, uh, and extremely frustrated and, and angry, but it still sometimes feels reductive to blame everything always on an evil regime. How, how does this level of mismanagement and tragic dysfunction actually happened? How does it actually play out? Well, uh, (laughs) we call, in system science, we call this a complex problem. Uh, Complex problems, you know, the very first rule they teach you is complex problems don't have one single cause and never try to find one, one cause that you know justifies this situation because every cause itself can be a, a, a an effect of something else in the system and there is a big fundamental difference between complex problems and complicated problem complicated problem is like finding a covid-19 vaccine you can eventually do it. it it takes a lot of money and lots of brain but but you can eventually do it but um, complex problems is like managing a covid-19 crisis you want to fix health you you damage economy you want to damage economy you 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 damage the environment and something else and and there are tons of trade-offs uncertainties evolutionary behavior and so on so so water resource problem in iran is is a complex problem you 
cannot it's easy yes of course like you can always say the regime or some bad management mismanagement you have to dig into this and find out what is what is going on if you want to understand better and 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 if you want to find a solution right now we have lots of narratives which are all correct but very incomplete and don't provide the full picture. So, so, so can you do it? What, I mean, I, having said that it's issued the disclaimer that it's complex, what is the mismanagement? What is the dysfunction? So, so here's the thing. So Iran is a very big country, very, very diverse climate, you know, different elevations everywhere. Now, um, in every every location in Iran, you, you have a certain water budget and, and ecological capacity. Essentially, Khuzestan is one of those places with a good budget. North of Iran, by the Caspian Sea coast, is also um, one of those places. So, places you know, central Iran is very dry, of course, with with limited budget. So, so in each place you go go to, you have to um, plan according to the capacity you have and make sure that the, the pressure you put on the system it doesn't exceed its ecological capacity. Simply put, you know, if you want to explain it in a very simple way, uh, we have put too much pressure on, on the system and, and, and the ecosystem has broken and now we are seeing the, the feedback. But in terms of water resources, it's, it's years and years and years of unsustainable development the the mentality that that the Middle Easterns borrowed it from the West was that essentially with the oil money and with engineering and technology we can overcome a natural limitation called a water shortage in the region um, we say that you know this period in Iran which we are we still which is still has not ended is the era of hydraulic mission where the mentality of the leaders and the technocrats of the country was to to capture water at any cost through building dams through transferring water and use it for something beneficial in their mind agriculture industry um, city development and so on but but what we have learned in, in the West, which pursued this ideology as well at some point, was this can result in dust bowl. Remember the dust bowl in the United States. This can result in saltwater intrusion in the coastal region. Look at what happened in, in California. This can have dram dramatic environmental impacts on the lakes and wetlands. Look at the Great Lakes situation. So, so you cannot, you cannot... Uh, be the ruler of the nature. You cannot control the nature. You need to live with floods and droughts and extreme events, and you have to plan accordingly. What we have learned is that the hydraulic mission fails, and, and you cannot use money and engineering to solve all the problems. You have to learn to live with the water shortage you have. Khuzestan, if you want to use it as an example, is a place that we have built a lot of dams for water supply, for hydropower production, for 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 um, capturing water water for you know domestic water supply, agricultural water supply, and industrial water supply. We have also transferred water from its tributaries to other regions. We have minimized the flow of what we say clean water or, or fresh water into the Persian Gulf, salt water, that, that 
people thought that was a good idea. Now you have a situation that in everywhere in in this in this province you have problems as the result of unsustainable development. There okay. are okay. So, more so, than- so, so let me let me just stop you because I'm I'm getting uh, confused. First of all, I thought. I mean, I thought Iran was very proud of its dam building. You know, these were supposed to be, this was supposed to be a forte. You know, we, we know how to build the dams. How, how, can you just explain how the dams and the, the water transfer play into in, incompetence or inefficiency or dysfunction here? So let me ask you this. You, you live in Toronto. How proud are you of, of CN Tower? Do you care if CN Tower was, was taller or shorter? <laughs> I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's an impressive tower. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't think about it all the time. Is that my, my point here is that I- Iran built a, a tower which is very similar. And it's, it, you know, at, the, at the time they built it, it became the fourth tallest tower. Um, that you know to to the engineers of the country that can be a symbol of pride but that doesn't really affect the quality of life of the iranians as as it didn't affect the quality of life of of people in canada dam building um you know dam is a technology and it's it 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 it's complicated to to build it. It's not complex. It's complicated. So you can eventually find the knowledge and and acquire the knowledge and and build it. Iranians managed to become self sufficient in dam building, and it, they indeed became the top. You know, they made it to the top three dam builders in the world at the time that many in the developed world stopped building dams because of its ecological damage. Okay. Something that I say is the thirst of development of Iran started before the revolution by the increase of the oil price and it continued after the revolution um, because of war, because of sanctions, because the Iranians wanted to prove to the world that they can stand on their own feet. So big, big structures, big concrete structures uh, where it became a symbol of pride. That's something that every decision maker can um, can take a photo with and 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 be proud and once you build it it boosts the local economy people are happy it creates jobs but in the long run it affects the flow of the river and you build, build too many of them they they end up being empty and they affect you know they dry up your rivers and wetlands so we may build too much too many dams in iran we may build too too many uh, large dams in iran we didn't need this much storage capacity on rivers which were going to get you know empty because uh, with with, who's with 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 declining uh flows because because of climate change and other anthropogenic changes, land use changes, and so on, and this is the situation that we see, and it's it's the result. This is the point that it this is the result of bad planning. But who lack who, of who is? Foresight. I mean, building too many. Da- I mean, who's in charge? Who, who is? Is there no one to say we we shouldn't build this many dams? It's going to be a problem. I mean, listen. Let's get what we're going to get to the the tragic, heartbreaking political element of this of, of clamping down on protests and stuff. But just just sheer in sheerly in terms of the inefficiency of the system, why? Who who is supposed to be overseeing this? Um. Of course, government. So in every every country where you face environmental problems or any sort of, um, you know, any other sort of problem, you can blame the government and you should blame the government. But um, the thing is, you know, it, we have 
the tragedy is that we have seen the exact same path in the West. Like the Americans built a lot of dams and they realized that, oh, you know, wait a minute, there are ecological damages, let's change course. And and the the problem is that the Iranians saw this and the, Ch- the Chinese saw this, the Brazilians saw this, and they're still repeating the, the exact same path thinking that this is, you know, building more dams is a sign of development. Building a tall tall tower is a sign of development uh, rather than focusing on 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 justice, on equality, on, on distributing the resources in, in an equal way. Now, who is in charge? Of course, the government. Who decides in the government? There are like ministries. There's like a, a structure which with 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 stakeholders ministry of energy in charge of water and power um department of environment in charge of protecting the environment ministry of jihad agriculture in terms you know um commissioned with with increasing the food uh, food um supply of the country food production uh, ministry of industry uh and mines and and they're also they're also commissioned to um, to expand the industrial sector so from every, every one of these um, ministries you have asked to expand, that's the plan you provide. Then you have the parliament, and the parliament is also asking for development projects in every location. So a parliament member wants to get re-elected, he, push, he or she pushes for a, a project to be approved in his or, her, his or her basin, not thinking about the long-term effects. Mm. Add to this the problem of corruption, add to this the problem of you know, super hierarchy and in the system, Tehran's, you know, people in Tehran deciding for the whole country. And because of that hierarchy, there are chances for, again, corruption and, and, and mismanagement. So, so lots of deficiencies. And add to this also that there was a mentality, there was a dominant mentality there and still is there that we can solve the problem through engineering solutions. So we started with digging wells, uh, then we switched the dams, then we we started transferring water, and now we're looking into desalination options. So still the mentality is there. We're, we're not working on revising the policies, we are not working on revising the crop pattern, we're not working on revising uh, the development uh, pattern and it's funny that I say we. I'm thinking yeah, I'm still yeah. one of them, but so so. I mean, the, the, all of this sounds, uh, frankly, it sounds complex and complicated to, uh, to me. To you both, both terms, but but if there is available water, and if this is a, and and nice dams, and if this is about. Um, the system just not particularly working the way it should and in ways that has happened in other countries as well. What do you mean then? What do you mean by water bankruptcy in Iran? Okay, when we say enough water, as I said, it you know depends on what, what sort of demand you define. So Iran, Iran in, in the Middle East, if you look at Iran's per capita water availability is one of the you know top countries there. So, so so it, yes, it is. It has less water than the rest of the world, but in that p- particular re- region, Iran has a lot of water. Now, um, what defines your demand is how you set up your economy and, and development path. Iran decided. Iran decided to expand its agricultural sector B- even before the revolution. The issue of dependency on the West for wheat as the main food was a concern. 
This concern grew after the revolution because Iran went to, into a war with the rest of the wor sure. world. It, it had a war with Iraq. This strategy continued, and 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 then this the the thinking of let's protect the poor and let's protect the farmers, let's give them subsidies, give them free water, cheap water, cheap energy. So so this this sector became more and more inefficient. More than 90% of water in Iran goes into the agricultural sector. At the beginning, I said there is a big difference between producing right. wheat right. as a strategic food and eggplant, right. Right? right? Now we are using our food in a wrong industry for a wrong product. Now, Iran's political, if you look at this problem from a political economy standpoint, you realize that Iran is essentially using its water land and, and 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 natural resources to create jobs because it's it's afraid of unemployment so the the operations is economically the operations are economically inefficient still they're continuing business as usual because if they cut water to the farmers what you see is Khuzestan. If they ask people to stop using water, what you see is, is protests, more tensions, and so on, because they haven't planned in advance to move the, you know, to expand the industrial sector, to expand the service sector, so you take, you know, where one drop of water can, can produce more dollars. But, but the worst part of what you're saying, I think, is that, which is, I mean, it, it makes sense, but it's still um, horrible to, to actually consider. It, is that this issue, this this whole issue that has caused protests and has caused a crackdown on protests, which has taken lives and and is has left Khuzestan and other places in, in Iran in disarray again, is years in the making, and that, uh, I mean, in, in other words, it's not that it's not that somebody turned off the tap all of a sudden and everybody went where's our water like the way they block the internet but the internet is still there we can turn it back on what you're saying is years of problematic planning has created this which then um would lead me to think it's going to take years to try and fix this Absolutely. I mean, this is what you need to get. I mean, this is what everyone needs to understand that the problem which is created over decades cannot be fixed overnight. There is no quick fix here. Yes, yes, there are, there are, you know, triggers, for example, like a drought. So a drought kicked in right after two years of floods, by the way, you know, people were dying in Khuzestan, if you recall, not long ago. So two years of right. really there was floods. Unprecedented, right, 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 yes, right. unprecedented precipitation in the region. Reservoirs were full. Now, you can have bad, you know, they don't close, you know, shut the tap or close the tap, but, 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 they make bad, bad, bad decisions. For example, in this case, in winter, they emptied the reservoir too early for power production, and it didn't rain later on. And and now this is the situation. So we we have like you know some bad managers that can also play a role and and ex exacerbate the problem. But the 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 you know if you look at look at the problem, try to analyze the problem, that person's role is is minimal to. The accumulation of all the mistakes, all the bad decisions that have been made over so many years. Years and years of decisions on 
where to place people, where to grow, like, you know, where to, you know, where to have population, where to develop. All these decisions have had a role and have played a major role in, in, in creation of this situation. Now, you ask about water bankruptcy, and I want to explain this. So, to you know, if for for your audience so i want i want them to remember this forever um surface water that you, you have plenty of in canada um is your essentially your checking account your rivers and and wetlands or lakes right. that's the water that every year gets renewed by by the nature that's your income you get it sometimes your 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 employer doesn't give you much sometimes it's, it's generous you get bonuses and you get more than average and so on so now you have also a saving account that's your groundwater you inherited it from your your ancestors and and it's there so as a backup if if you do bad in your surface water if you're short you can go go to it spend a little bit of it and and you you know later on use your surplus to recharge it so you stay resilient now in Iran, what we have done is is we have exhausted exhausted our checking account. Then we went to our saving account. We drain our saving account, right. and and you know we say there is enough water. Yes, but not enough water for the users which are out there now. Because then we told people, we told the stakeholders, go develop, go build this industry, go 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 expand here. You know, go expand your agriculture, go build it. You know, build housing units here. So now we have a lot of creditors. That who are claiming, you know, a lot of stakeholders who have water rights, and we cannot satisfy their their water rights. So our our um, our our water system has has used its credit cards, and it's it owes a lot of water to people, but there is not enough water to to um you know to satisfy them. So I call this a situation of yeah. water bankruptcy, which is a post crisis stage because i say as long as we're in a crisis we think that we can mitigate the problem we can fix this we can restore everything no we cannot Got let's it. let's Got stop it. denying that we are we have failed and we have to admit that we have failed we have to adapt and mitigate at the same time adaptation is also part of the game let me pick up on a couple of things that you said in your list of uh, ways in which this is a complex issue um at one point you said the word corruption what wh how does corruption play here so corruption is is like okay I'm a, I'm an engineer and you know studied there and now I have a consulting firm now I, I go in and and this this exists everywhere I mean we we everywhere in the world we have this situation now if they ask me to do a really feasibility I mean study. honestly do you think that the corruption no. with regards Corrupt to water in Canada is as bad as Iran no, 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 no. There's the difference between existing everywhere and, and the level. So let me <laughs> okay. get into the level of corruption. Right, yeah, yeah. But, you know, we know that, you know, the corruption in construction a few years ago, right? You know, sure, you know Justin sure, Trudeau. Sure. How, yeah. You know, so exactly yeah. the same thing. Now, I'm running a construction business and I, I'm asked to do a feasibility study. If I go and say, oh, it's not feasible, it's not a good idea, it, it affects the environment, you, you know, I don't get a project, right? I get fifty thousand dollars amount. If I go and say it's feasible and and it's it's really good and it's beneficial, and then I fool everyone and bribe everyone, then I get the multi-million dollar project. So I'll do that. So I have incentives to fool the system where 
I see others are also doing the same. And to do to to survive, I also need to get corrupted. So it becomes part of the business. That that's part of it. Then there is like you know other things within within the system. There are managers who get bribed. There are managers who who make political decisions. Corruption is not only you know economic. There are people who who also you know function they're corrupt in terms of politics they they everything for them is political they they make a decision based on politics preferring this party to another this project to another just because it belongs to a certain group so all of, all of these are part of the game and they intensify the problem they exacerbate the problem the structure that we have the the governance structure that we have for the environment creates lots of opportunities for this and over the years, it it has increased. Now, people, some people call it a dam mafia, or you know, or you know, some sort of water mafia. I don't think we are facing a coordinated mafia like the Italian mafia, which which also does a lot of good things. But 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 I I think it's not a coordinated system in a way. It is it is a, a corrupted market that that. People, you know, different parties uh, like to survive in, and and they somehow get into this business and right. and to win contracts. It's not even competent enough to be coordinated. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's it's worse than coordinated <laughs> mafia. But, <laughs> but, but 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 you also mentioned climate change, and I thought it's important to address that because even just doing a little bit of research about this to prep to, to be able to speak to you, uh, you know, it was interesting. I mean, obviously most Iranians are uh, in the diaspora, at least are, are extreme. And I guess, I'm guessing in Iran as well are, are extremely upset at the, the government, at the regime and, and, and see this as just another step in the deterioration of life in Iran. Um, but there was a couple of articles I read where of people, sort of pundits kind of saying, well, you know, this isn't necessarily about mismanagement. Look, the drought is chronic in this region, Iran, Turkey, Pakistan. This is about, uh, this is probably about climate change and they're trying to make it about the government. How big a deal is this, this drought in, in questions that we're dealing with today about Khuzestan? Okay, let, let's distinguish between a drought as an extreme event and, and climate change. So droughts existed on Earth before we, 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 we you know, humans are on it. Uh, floods also, heat waves as well. So these are extreme climatic events which exist and, and, and they're natural and we have to live with them. We say that climate change increases the intensity and frequency of these extreme events so both floods droughts and everything and and if we now look around so you see western canada and the united states wildfires belgium and germany floods iran drought right Right. Right. so so again you know when it comes to iran we say regime in other parts of the world where people trust the government more they say climate change i think it's the same attitude essentially uh, it's you know easy explanation for a complex problem easy cause for a complex complex uh, problem now n- climate change just like corruption has a multiplying effect it's a multiplier it's a catalyst it's a, it exacerbates the situation like a bad decision maker like a bad manager like a bad minister it's not 
the cause of the problem, whether you are in Canada or you know Germany or Iran, same thing. And um, it's it's funny because we in the cli- you know climate change community in, in at the universities in academia and also the activists and, and think tanks like to climatize every event. Why? Because they want to get attention to to climate change. Sure. They say, look. This is climate change, right? So it gets media headlines and climate change is something that m- most media want to promote. But, but, but um, you know, the, the effect is that the managers also say, look, it's climate change. I couldn't have done anything about it. Right, I'm not right, responsible. Right. So they don't take responsibility for it. Now, in the West is different from, you know, global north is also different from the global south because the global south, is you know, there is even less responsibility because they say, you know who who created climate change? Right, the, the industrial economies. Right, right, it's right. not us. So we got to be very careful in understanding the causes and catalysts. Now we can't tell by 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 high certainty that the particular event is driven by climate change or has how much it has been affected. We look at the past, we look at the recent history, and we say yes, there is enough evidence that the the scientific community agrees that climate change is real, is a big threat, and it has particular, you know, impacts that we should get prepared for, including more intense and longer and more frequent droughts and floods. Okay, let me um, let me get to you've given us great context for. Um, and and in terms of the situation, and in terms of resources, in terms of water in Iran, let me get to the current issue or crisis and tr- try to untangle it for me. Why is Khuzestan? I mean, last I read, eleven cities in in Khuzestan are are the hardest hit in Iran with water shortages. Why? You know, we we have this situation in many cities in in the country right now, and, and in many villages, including more than seven hundred villages in in Khuzestan, which don't have access access to even tr- clean drinking water. And all cities in Khuzestan don't have um, clean drinking water. The the water they get through their uh, water distribution network is is not clean for drinking, and they have to treat. Uh, things using treatment equipment at home. Um, now, part of this is was there. So for a long, long time, for example, drinking water quality was bad in Khuzestan. And, you know, poor people, they have got used to this and they have kind of accepted this as, as you know, something, a part of the, the reality. Now, add to this the issue of, of farmers who are not receiving water for their crops. This is the, you know, last stages of, last stage of growth this season they have to you know kind of finalize their crops for for sale and because of this lack of water the you know their crops would fail so they're very angry and this is something to note when we talk about lack of water we always think oh yeah you know you open the tap and there is no water but you know, for you living in, in, in urban areas, for us living in urban areas, yes, that's that's because water is not related to our job, really. But for farmers, water is their life. It's right. their, their subsistence, right? It's their income. So it makes a big difference for them. Now, what, why, why is this happening? Just for the reason I said, not, they don't have enough water in their reservoirs, and they're not releasing it. They they got fooled by 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 
wet years and they thought that a wet a long wet period has started they they told people to go and and grow whatever crops they wanted including rice which is a, a thirsty crop and it requires a lot of water and now you know once we proce- proceeded uh, in, in the year, they realized that there's not enough water and they cannot satisfy the people. Now, there is water in the reservoir, but it, in the reservoirs, but if they release it right now and it doesn't rain in a few months, the very se- same people are in a greater danger. But this region, Kavajan, I mean, this, mm-hmm. this paradox of Khuzestan, and I'm trying not to be a a homer here because my um, you know family lineage on my dad's side is from Khuzestan and from Ahvaz and my dad was born in Abadan and you know so so I, I kind of I've heard this over the years you know and Khuzestan is I mean it is reputed to be the nerve center of Iran's oil dependent economy it own, owns nearly 80% of the country's crude 60% of its natural gas why has it been kept systematically deprived and underdeveloped in the last four decades okay good good point so, so this systematic failure is not only in the water sector, right? So it is in, it, if you think about it, it, it is in every sector. That's part of this game that Iran developed its, its system so bad. Develop, you know, its economic model was wrong. Its development model and land use model was wrong. So the growth happened in, in four or five metropolitans in the country. People moved to Tehran. They moved to Shiraz. They moved to Isfahan. They moved to Mashhad. Um, some Tabriz, um, some to Tabriz. And these places started growing and growing and growing and attracting more resources. Uh, even within Khuzestan, you know, more resources went to Ahvaz and the other places didn't get enough resources. So you see this sort of imbalance between the growth and quality of life in, in some places which are richer and have more population and, and some other places. The oil money to came to Tehran and it was distributed in the way that Tehran decided. You know, it went to whatever they wanted to do outside the borders or inside the borders. So to be clear, the resources of Khuzestan get usurped, but don't necessarily translate into money for education or health or roads or utilities in Khuzestan. Yes, because of bad planning, because in, in the model that we have in Iran, Khuzestan doesn't own its resources. Now, I'm not advocating for for saying that, okay, like, you know, every every place must must not share it share its resources f- f- with the rest of the country because these are all in one country but i'm advocating for equality i'm advocating for for the you know satisfying the rights of the khuzestanis khuzestanis must benefit from the resources which are in their territory otherwise otherwise what what are we seeing you know oil was discovered there long ago um we in the west took advantage of their the economies in the West took advantage of the oil that comes from Khuzestan, right? We all owe to that that oil. And Iran also owes its 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 development to the money that came from Khuzestan. It was the you know sugar daddy of of, of Iran for forever. And right, it right. did so much for Iran. And and then you think about what Iran paid back to it. What did Iran do for it? You know, it, Khuzestanis have left with pollution, water shortage, cancer and pollution, you know, air pollution, soil pollution, you know, cancer, health problems, dust storms, um, soil degradation, desertification, you know, every, every problem, every environmental problem you name, wildfire, you know, fires, 
everything, everything, because this was not the this you know income distribution model. We didn't have it this way. We we just whoever had more power moved the resource to its 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 his his or her own region. Uh, didn't think about this. They didn't, uh, and and we didn't. I mean, and uh, honestly, like you know, Khuzestan is just one example. Boucher right, province right. is next to Khuzestan. It it provides most of the gas, uh, natural gas in the country. And until recently, people didn't have. You know, access to to um, piped gas that that you know I I had access to as a per as a as a person who grew up in 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 Tehran long ago, right? So Tehran is connected to gas, and Boucher is not connected to gas. Sitting next to the gas resources or sitting yes, on you've, the gas you've resources. actually made the point. I've heard you make the point that as much as this is about Khuzestan, it's not only about Khuzestan. Baluchistan, other places in Iran are also suffering in 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 this crisis in particular. Absolutely. So, so it's not the problem of it's it's Khuzestan, you know, and and it's it's systematic, as you said, it's it's systematic, and you you see there are like you know um, poor places, and they are deprived in every sect. So they have health issues, they have water issues, they have environmental issues, education issues, lack of investment, infrastructure issues, and you can find these places in Khuzestan, Kurdistan, Golestan, Baluchistan. You know, everywhere, everywhere these things exist, you know, and, and this is the sad part. Now, Khuzestan is, is complaining and, and they can't, they have come out and they're shouting for the rights. We have to, we have to support them. And, you know, this is a, this is the right moment. They're asking for the right thing. And, and other places also have the similar situation and we shouldn't forget them. We have to add what access to clean water and sanitation and, and environment is a human right. What do you think of the argument that there's a political dimension to this, that, that uh, there's observers who say the government deliberately refuses to empower residents in, in Khuzestan, in the southwestern province, uh, because there's it's home to a, you know, a restive ethnic Arab minority, and this might potentially create uh, the conditions where they can harbor plans for secession. What, what do you think of all of that? I'm a scientist. I don't have enough evidence to say this is intentional, but but I can certainly, by, by looking as the as at the statistics, I can certainly say that there is a systematic problem, and this is not unique to the you know um, ethnic like you know the Arab community. So we have the same thing with with other Sunni communities, for example, across, around Iran. We we also have the same situation with some other ethnic groups w- within Iran. So definitely there is a at least at the very least a systematic failure there which has resulted in the you know in in the the distance between the level of growth in, in these communities and the rest of the country. Now whether they want to intentionally keep some communities poor, don't empower them because of future threats, it's hard to tell. And it's stupid if they do it because they're shooting themselves in the foot. But but we have seen a lot of stupid things happening in mm-hmm. in that country, so I don't get surprised. You sometimes doing- that's that's certainly true. You, you you sometimes use the term environmental justice. What what do you mean by that? Here's the thing, like you know, so so so, you know, it it has you know a lot of interpretations, but but you know, to to make it simple and and use one one sim, one dimension of it here is 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 the access 
uh, to the environmental resources in Iran? You know, ha- has it been distributed in a fair and just manner? Um, the, qual- the, the, the environmental services, or have we, for example, used the the eco- ecosystem services of 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 Khuzestan or or its natural resources um, to benefit the Iranians as a whole, but have left the pollution for 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 the Khuzestanis. I see this as a really problematic problem that and that is and and uh, that is missing in in the is being overlooked in the in the discussions uh, related to Iran, whether it's about the environment. Or, or human rights. This is a serious violation of human rights. Whatever we have, we, we have done to Khuzestan and the damages we have caused are contributing to this, and we have to complain about it. And yet, you know, sometimes you you sit down and watch. You might be a Tehrani who who are watching the situation, and you feel bad, but you are not taking action. Sooner or later, this would be your situation. And we have seen it. Like, you know, uh, we have seen the air pollution in Tehran. We have seen the air pollution in Isfahan. And and one other thing, Jian, it's, you know, people talk about um, a water transfer, right? And 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 now they have even put people uh, people in conflict with people. And that's what I, I really am afraid of because of wrong narratives and manipulated narratives and an emotional situation. So now, ter- you know, um, they tell the the Khuzestanis that Isfahanis are taking your water. They tell tell the Isfahanis that the Kashanis and Yazdis are taking your water. Wow. They tell the Kermanis that the Isfahanis are not giving you divide water. and conquer, right? <laughs> exactly, and and then and then they tell the Isfahanis that the Khuzestanis are not giving you water. So so so, but but if you look at all these places, they're all, they're also suffering. The, you know, we have at a moment. People begging for water, both in Khuzestan and in 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 um, Isfahan. Zayanderud is dry, Karun is dry. So it's like they have damaged the, the wrong policies on sustainable development, on even development, has damaged all the country. And this is what we need to understand. We saw Lake Rumia, we didn't see this coming in other places. We saw the, the situation of groundwater around the country, a big bomb, which is much bigger uh, than than the Lake Rumia underneath, um, you know, Iran, the Iranians, and, and people didn't see it, didn't didn't think about it. These are really like, you know, clock bombs in Iran, which we, we need to warn about and, and take action on. People probably thought I was paranoid complaining about all these things yeah. um, a few, you know, <laughs> over the years, but we see how serious it can get. Yeah, it's a horrible way to be right, but you were right. Um, Unfortunately, yeah. And I know you're a scientist, uh, not a politician, although you've been a politician, (laughs) as we famously know as well. Um, And so I can't end the conversation without asking about what's happened on the streets in Khuzestan. And, you know, I honestly think we we being the world or or the Iranians in the diaspora or people around the world, you know, oh, those who have protested in Khuzestan, uh, in those cities, in those villages, uh, a debt of gratitude because they have, you know, catapulted this issue, if not in the Western media, at least in, in the Iranian circles, in, into the forefront of our dialogue. Um, and of course, they've done this in some cases uh, at the cost of their own lives. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the crackdown has been sadly trademark brutal. Uh, how does the state get away with the clampdown on these protests? In other words, what is their pretext at this point? 
<laughs> I mean, so you have seen that they're trying to say that yes, we we are, you know, this is okay, this is just, and and uh, people are right, but still you see some brutality there. The the you know one thing to note, not you know, of course, this absolutely we we have to condemn whatever whatever the Islamic Republic has done to the to the protesters. It's you cannot beat the people who are fighting for their right to live, for their right to breathe and, and, and drink. Uh, but the reality, you know, people refer to these things as water wars, but the reality is that water is a trigger. Um, people um, have accumulated anger for many, many, many reasons. Right. And we all know those reasons, right? right. Um, when the Syrian crisis happened, people blame everything on a drought and simplified, like, you know, the Westerners um, are reductionist thinkers, especially the scientists. And, you know, they saw a correlation between a drought and a system failure. They said, okay, a drought caused this. But the reality was the Ba'ath regime had planned really bad in a bad way similar way in in you know in its water sector agricultural sector and people had a lot of other complaints in that system and then water became a trigger environmental problems essentially justify your expression of anger and uh, or other events right two years ago it was the change of the gasoline price we saw a lot of you know innocent young people getting killed and beaten and those people probably didn't even have a car. They didn't even have enough money to buy a car. But still, they came out because it was the right moment to do that. Now, you know, two years before that, it was a change of egg price, for example, in right, Iran. It's, right. So, 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 once these people, once these, that's, that's the challenge they're having. Now, they're trying, you know, trying to kind of, kind of live with this and, and do anger management, right? So verbal flirting and, and saying some good things and then and then beating people on streets. Um, but but let, let but, me just let me just on that point. Let me actually uh, quote. Uh, the, so I mean, eight days after the flare up of the protests, uh, Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei uh, said the water crisis in Khuzestan was, quote unquote, a painful concern. So, um, in other words, we're going to shoot you if you protest, maybe kill you, but what you're dealing with is a painful concern. It was difficult to square that thinking. You know, th this is something we have we have seen. I mean, this is the problem of Iran's essentially governance system with, um, you know, with with a parliament that is 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 having problems and it can interfere with the process with the government that it doesn't have a full control of everything um, a, a, a judicial system which has its own problems and corruption and with the supreme leader now in most cases the supreme leader is is um is the wise man who is um who is coming in and 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 you know giving some advices once the situation is is calmer and and they you know so it, this this is this is what we are seeing so the, of course the action as always is different from what you see the platitudes you know, what, right yeah yeah and but but that that is the thing so so things can get out of control things can get out of i mean and that's what that's what i teach <laughs> at Yale, like environmental security in the Middle East, like how the environment can play a role in in creating nat national security disasters, national security problems. So, which so, is how? 
which is what you're seeing like you know so once once your your life is, stops once your source of income stops uh, if your economy is so much dependent on natural resources so international security issues in, in inside your own country uh, national security uh-huh. issues within your country but you can have also international security issues if if you are you are sharing in you know a basin with 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 you know transboundary source or or something but but i'm talking about national security issues yeah. um in this case international some some for no, example no i said blame. In, in, i was saying intra like in other words inside intra, your, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes yes i'm sorry yeah. yeah 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 so 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 this is this is this is a serious problem and and there is no easy solution to it and it can evolve in any way i mean we it's really not easy to tell what's going to happen next and and if it doesn't rain that's that's it like you know the this is this this is what what is killing me that the future of 80 plus i don't know million people 82 million people is dependent on clouds and wind in the in in the near future so the sky will determine the future of 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 people if it doesn't rain iran would face a serious problem well that's um that's a setup for my final question unfortunately despite the fact that you said this is complex and it's undoubtedly complicated and that it's impossible to know where this is going i'm going to ask you where do you think this is going because um you do have some sense of these things. You 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 have been deeply involved in the the environmental issues. You know you understand the issue, and you you also know how these things can serve as tipping points, as you've suggested, in terms of uh, protest and and it being the final straw, so to speak. Where where is your sense of where this is going practically and politically in the coming days and weeks? Huh. Um, I really don't know. The, you know, there they don't have enough water. the The water year, just so you know, ends in 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 September. So October is the beginning of the next water year. Uh, things can, you know, if Iran gets lucky, there would be rain, and and things would would go away for for at least a while. There would be a band aid there. Um, on on the ground, the actions of the government, I think it would be mostly focused on on anger management, somehow doing some settlements with, with, with the angry farmers, for example, promising compensation in some places, taking tankers to places, promising to fi- fix the infrastructure. The big trouble is that in, in, in about 10 days or so, we have a transition of a government, so the new government would take over. They have to learn everything from scratch and start from everything from from scratch, so this transition makes things scarier to me. We have a parliament, which is a populist. They are the ones who who permitted rice growth in, in Khuzestan, for example. Um, and we, we have a government which has promised to come with, with you know, to, and try to fix the economic situation. And if they want to do that, they have to allow my, you know, mining more and using more natural resources. So whatever I see, you know, I look, wherever I look at it is, is very dark, yeah. even if JCPOA is, is restored and, and some, some relief is provided to Iran, I think that's very temporary, and I don't see them um, making radical changes to their development policies in a short period of time, unfortunately, within this 
environmental governance structure. And this is this is actually in 2016 we wrote a paper about Iran's water bankruptcy. I mean, after a famous paper in 2014 about Iran's water crisis, and you know, I think about the last sentence is that there is minimal hope that within the current governance structure we see any any change to the status of the water system and 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 water management and if uh, and and when you're teaching at Yale if a young student comes to you and says professor madani i'm iranian i'm here at yale what can i do what do you say uh, i mean to those in, you know like us on this side of the planet i want us to to first understand and appreciate the complexities and trade-offs don't be too simplistic and then empower the people of of iran empower the experts of the country with knowledge solutions and right narrative right now more than anything we need the right narrative of what the problems are and how they can be fixed what the solutions are um my my at at the end of my course when when students come to my course and the first day they think the solutions are you know piece of cake in the middle east they don't have water okay so they need to stop agriculture reduce water consumption uh, import their food and install solar energy and and stop selling oil and the problems would be solved we go through the course they learn everything is dependent on something else you try to fix the agricultural issue reduce water consumption you cause unemployment you try to fix this you create another problem at the end of the course i ask so you know what do you think they're all we're you know they tell me that they got disappointed and hopeless but i you know i always say you but you are now realistic i mean this sort of now you have a better understanding of what is happening and you can be more creative or um in in cre- in developing practical solution rather than yeah. the simple things like you know reduce water consumption farmers are need to stop growing this and that farmers need income yeah. uh, government needs you know wants to stay in power um their in, unemployment can cause revolutions so th- all, you have to appreciate all these complexities to be able to solve the problem i'm very pessimistic but at the mm-hmm. same time what makes me hopeful is is that humans are smart and mm, every crisis if it doesn't result in a full failure of a system um and collapse of a system they can create opportunities for it addressing some inefficiencies this problem has got so big that no one can deny it in the near future yeah. so they can no longer call a person like myself a water terrorist or a bioterrorist because I'm t- speaking about water shortage in Iran um they cannot produce conspiracy theories that that a drought or increasing drought is 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 false or is a lie or like is is the enemy's uh plan for Iran or whatever so so th- this is the good part although this is a really yeah. better situation as we all know Kave, your record is undiminished in leaving us depressed at the end of talking to you. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> and yet, uh, I, I actually, you know, I've always believed that you draw hope and you draw um, a belief in change by understanding issues. By and, and, and this has been really helpful in terms of getting a sense of, getting a basic sense, at least uh, from what I can understand, and I hope what, uh, folks listening, of what, what we're dealing with and, and, and potentially how that could lead to change. Um, I thank you so much. 
I know you're very busy these days, and I know everybody wants to talk to you. I thank you so much for giving us this hour, and uh, I look forward to our next chat. Thank you, Jean, and I, I, I really hope our audience don't get disappointed. And let me add this, because people write to me, how about desalination? How about this technology and that technology? All those things can help. All those things can be part of the solution, but, but they cannot solve a problem which is rooted in Iran's political economy and I- Iran's economic model. As long as Iran... Um, you know, is is interested or to in pursuing its ideology and is in prioritizing its ideology over national interest or you know national sec- security in terms of you know uh, as as it relates to environmental um, protection. Uh, we we cannot be hopeful that these problems would be solved. I, I can see some band-aids kicking in and some band-aids being used, but I, I see this problem coming back every time at a greater scale. Um, thanks for having me, Jian. Thank you, Kaveh. Bye-bye. Bye. Kaveh Madani, a scientist, a writer, and currently a Henry Hart Rice Senior Fellow at Yale University, visiting professor at Imperial College London as well. Kaveh Madani, joined us from Toronto today. This is an edition of Rook focused on explaining Khuzestan and the crisis in Iran right now. Remember, for all things Rook, you can go to our website, rookmedia.com, where you can find all of our episodes, our guests from previous episodes, our special segments, and how to become a patron, rookmedia.com. Well, having heard from Kaveh Madani, let's get another perspective. This time, let's go to Paris and someone who knows the situation in Iran all too well from another angle. My next guest was the executive editor-in-chief of the daily newspaper Kehan in Iran from 1972 to 1979. Amir Tahiri has worked at or written for numerous publications, published numerous books, Books, and has also been editor-in-chief of Jeune Afrique, the Middle East correspondent for the London Sunday Times from 1980 to 1984, has written for the Pakistan Daily Times, the Daily Telegraph, the Guardian, and the Daily Mail, and he has been a regular presence as an expert on Iranian affairs everywhere from the BBC to CNN, and right now, Amir Tahiri joins me from Paris, France. Hello, sir. Hello to you. Thank you very much for doing this. We've just heard from Kaveh Madani with a, an environmental perspective uh, and context as to the dysfunction of water supply and roots of this crisis in Khuzestan and beyond. I want to ask you more about the social and political dimensions of what we're seeing. You were you were born in Ahvaz, uh, in Khuzestan. Yes, I was born in Ahvaz, and I lived there until I was 11. Uh, but I never uh, severed my uh, ties with Ahvaz. I have large family there. You know, our family has been uh, rooted there for about three centuries. So uh, I have a special attachment to Khuzestan. Yes, as my my family on my father's side as well. Can you can you reflect, uh, Amirjan, on on what we have witnessed, uh, albeit from afar, for those of us not in Iran, over the last fortnight? What have you been feeling? 
Well, you know, there is a, a dereliction of duty on the part of uh, the present uh, government in Tehran. Um, I, 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 I don't want to say that it was deliberate, but really, you know, they have uh, done great injustice uh, to Khuzestan, uh, which used to be the vanguard of Iranian economic uh, development, development and modernization. Uh, Ahwaz was the first uh, Iranian a city to have 24-hour electricity before Tehran. It was the first Iranian city to have uh, uh, water supplies, uh, purified water supplies, long before Tehran had so uh, asphalted uh, streets, you know, and so on, because it was the capital of the oil industry, which was the main source of uh, income for Iran for uh, about half a century. So uh, suddenly, you know, to see... Uh, Khuzestan, which has uh, 17 rivers, including uh, the largest uh, Karun and uh, many others, uh, going running out of water, you know, people being thirsty and so on. It is really uh, heartbreaking. It's, uh, as I said, I don't want to say it's done deliberately, but uh, uh, the result is uh, the same. You know, Khuzestan used to be... Uh, um, number one Iranian province in attracting uh, uh, direct foreign investment, but you know uh, since the revolution, of course, there has been no no such investment anywhere. The Iranian oil industry is in crisis. Uh, Mr. Zangene, <coughs> who is the oil minister, says we need 300 billion dollars to uh, revive the Iranian oil industry and uh, save some uh, major fields like uh, Karun, Bibi Hakime, Marun. Etc. from uh, really going to waste. And uh, the government uh, in Tehran instead uh, uh, decides to invest in keeping uh, Bashar al-Assad in power in Syria or exporting revolutions and shenanigans like that. You know, the port of Khurramshahr used to be the uh, biggest port in the Persian Gulf. And now it is, you know, out of its uh, 12... Uh, uh, jetties, only two of them are still operational. Half the city is still in ruins. All the uh, palm groves, uh, the date groves that were around it, which were burnt uh, during the Iraqi uh, invasion, have not been repaired. Uh, it has lost uh, more than a third of its population. And uh, uh, the uh, regime in Tehran seems uh, oblivious of that. Then so we have the Shat al-Arab, which is uh, which has been clogged since the war with uh, boats sank there and uh, uh, minefields and so on. Um, uh, under um, President Rafsanjani, there was a plan to spend uh, two billion dollars to clear, clean it and uh, open it again to regular shipping. So let me but let me let, let, let me stop you because you've, you've said so much that I want to ask yes, you sorry. about. Uh, and the, the, I mean, you have a, a particular insight, having been on the ground, having grown up there, having been an observer now. Um, first of all, I mean, um, uh, Kavim, uh, then he was talking about the, the complex marriage of all the different factors that have led to, uh, to the, the situation, the crisis we're in today. How much do you think this is the story of mismanagement and incompetence, at least in terms of the water part. I'll get to the, the clampdown, the crackdown on protesters mm -hmm. in a moment. But in terms of the water piece of this, how much is this the story of mismanagement from the current Iranian government? Well, I really can't say mismanagement because there is an ideological uh, undertone uh, in that. You see, Iran is a, a semi-dry country. We don't have much water. 
Therefore, uh, in the 1960s, the Shah's government decided that uh, we have uh, better go, you know, for uh, value-added, high-price uh, crops rather than um, uh, low-price, uh, cheap uh, uh, crops that require a lot of water, like rice and wheat. Uh, but uh, Mr. Khomeini and his successors thought that, you know, the Shah wanted to deprive uh, the Muslims from uh, bread and you know, to be forced to eat uh, bread coming from the infidels. So, you know, they decided uh, to um, uh, build a number of, uh, uh, if you like, uh, dams around uh, the country, even in dry places, um, to uh, encourage uh, uh, Iranian uh, farmers to uh, grow rice and, and wheat instead of importing it. And because there is no central decision-making mechanism in right. this uh, regime, right. uh, you know, uh, uh, it's uh, everybody for for himself. When you talk about the Khuzestan being the vanguard, as it was through the 20th century, uh, the, explain, if you will, for me and for the people listening who don't who are, don't understand this, what the, explain the paradox of Khuzestan. It, it is the nerve center of Iran's oil economy. Nearly 80% of the country's crude, 60% of its natural gas. Why has that region that is so crucial to creating the resources uh, been kept so systematically deprived and underdeveloped in the last four decades? Well, uh, you see, the, the Khuzestan uh, has many advantages that uh, the rest of Iranian provinces don't have. You know, first of all, it has direct access to the sea. It has uh, lots of water. It has uh, fertile land. Uh, you, and at the same time, you know, Khuzestan uh, attracted a lot of young Iranians. You know, in the 1960s, there was a movement, uh, young man go south, you know, like the in the U.S., you mm. know, they wanted was uh, young man go west. So, you know, the population of uh, Khuzestan between 1955 and 1975 more than doubled because it attracted a lot. Why? Because, of course, there was the oil industry. Of course, the oil industry is not uh, itself uh, very labor-intensive. You know, and also, Khuzestan is the only uh, province in Iran which is uh, entirely covered by railways, you know, from north to south. And uh, the, it, it had, of course, the biggest uh, port in the country as so, well. So all of that, that would all be the argument to to reward this region, which is a golden region for you, uh, for your country. So why has the opposite happened? Well, as, as I'm uh, trying to, uh, to explain to you, the, the opposite happened uh, because of uh, demagoguery and because of uh, ideological consideration. They said, you know, uh, Khuzestan has become, I don't know, the crown in the jewel of Tehran. The Shah loved it. So, you know, whatever the Shah did, we should do the opposite. That has been the motto of Mr. Khomeini and his successors. And then they started dividing the Khuzestanis among themselves. Because Khuzestan is, has the, also the unique uh, feature of being um, the assembly place of all Iranians, you know, from all provinces. You know, there are uh, um, Arab speakers, there are Lors, there are Bakhtiaris, there are Azerbaijanis, uh, there are uh, Tehranis, Khorasanis, Yazdis, everybody is there. And, you know, they have been... Uh, um, active in all uh, parts of life uh, in Khuzestan since then. So the, the present regime came and started dividing them into Shia, Sunnis, uh, native, non-native, uh, and so on. And uh, 
sowed uh, really the seeds of dissension in many parts of the province. So this systematically deprived and underdeveloped place now faces a dire water shortage, like some other regions of Iran. The people begin to raise their voices for these basic human rights. Uh, and then there's a brutal government crackdown. Now, it's, it's quite confounding, you know, just from a straight public relations point of view, why you would do... What is the pretext used by the state for cracking down like this on people who are literally just asking for basic rights? Well, you know, first of all, let, let me uh, remind you that uh, um, uh, in many parts of Iran, there is shortage of water, but um, people accept it because it's a fact of life. For example, if you are in uh, southern Khorasan province, there is no water and everybody knows it, you know, and uh, they uh, take it as a part of fate or background. So, you know, nobody does. But in Khuzestan, you know, you are... You, you really go mad when you see all these rivers, you know, all over getting dried or, you know, uh, being abused. Uh, you, you can't. This is quite different. You know, if if you are in the... Um, I've traveled in Algeria and Sahara too. Nobody there, you know, the, the demonstrates for water. Right. But right. they know there is no water. Right. So um, this, this is the first thing. And the pretext now that uh, the regime is using is either... Uh, uh, spreading the rumor that these are uh, secessionists, you know, who want to set up, I don't know, a, a separate country in Khuzestan, or they are followers of the uh, Pahlavi family, or members of the Mujahideen Khalq, or armed groups uh, financed by uh, uh, Arab powers, or even by Turkey. You know, the, this, this is the pretext they are using, you know, the, the, and they refuse to address the real issues, which, which can be addressed, and which can be uh, solved, you know, the problems could be solved, you know, if if uh, we have an ordinary government, not an ideal government, just a government that behaves normally, you know, I may not like it, but, you know, you may not like it, but, you know, if it starts uh, acting just uh, like a normal government, like 190 countries in the world, uh, Khuzestan's problems are uh, easily solved uh, compared to problems of other Iranian provinces which are far more complex the, the the regime seems to in this case be playing both sides to a certain extent by um suggesting that they're sympathetic to the issues of the water crisis uh, but at the same time shooting people in the streets who raise their voices about it what do you think of Khamenei saying this is a painful concern the water crisis that is uh last week well, uh, Khamenei uh, has, uh, uh, I don't know, developed a profile for himself as uh, the outsider, the observer. You know, in um, uh, Iranian folklore, uh, we always have uh, uh, the shahed, somebody who looks, you know, if you see in these um, uh, classical uh, Iranian uh, curtains where there is a painting of something happening and there is somebody in the corner just watching. You know, and uh, Khamenei has uh, cast himself uh, in that role as if he's not involved. And uh, he comes and makes a speech every now and then. But, you know, it is, uh, I, you know, either he's uh, really a nobody and he's not part of decision-making or he's a front uh, for uh, 
star chamber, you know, the parallel government or whatever. But uh, at the same time, you know, other other people who work with him, they say nothing can be done without his say so. So, you know, who is lying? He or uh, his entourage? Look at uh, Mr. Rouhani said last week that his government in the past eight years has done nothing without the approval of the Supreme Guide, that is Mr. Khamenei. So it is uh, really very worrying if Mr. Khamenei too has no power. So this is, uh, Iran is a ship in a storm without a captain. When you say Khuzestan's problems are easily solved, um, I don't know if you're being just sort of anecdotal or if you're actually being serious about that. If this was... This it was years in the making of depriving a region, mismanagement, corruption, incompetence. Uh, how how do you see these uh, these issues being easily resolved? Well, you know, we already have uh, plans uh, to uh, revive the port of Khorramshahr. This could be we could start working on it tomorrow. I mean, not me, but I mean the the present government itself. We also have a plan. Uh, costed at about $4 billion to clean the Shatel Arab. Uh, that could also be done. The plan is there. So instead of giving money to Hezbollah, you could uh, spend the money uh, on that. Then, you know, um, there are Khuzestani um, uh, war refugees, you know, who are uh, spread all over the country. They could be helped, you know, given uh, bank loans and so on to, to go back home. You know, the, the, you could also... Uh, how shall I say, um, start bringing in some technology to keep our oil fields uh, operating. But the uh, regime or Mr. Khamenei or whoever is in, in charge, uh, for example, refuses uh, American, British, and Dutch companies. And unfortunately, these are the only three countries with uh, the know-how the, to, for, for, for the oil industry. Even Putin in Russia is using them. So uh, that, that uh, if we, we lifted the ban on uh, using these companies too, you know, we could uh, revive them. Then uh, there is the uh, completion of the Darhuain uh, nuclear uh, power station, which is, has been abandoned uh, for years. Again, the plants uh, are there. As far as water is concerned, you know, the, the closure of the second Kuhrang tunnel which transfers water from Khuzestan, and instead the c- construction of uh, a tunnel between the river Khersan and uh, the river um, Karun could, uh, you know, save this river from uh, going completely dry. Then uh, dredging the rivers Jarrahi, Marun, Zohre, Bahmanshir, Dez, etc., could also help. And there are, there are plans for, for these from before the revolution and from after the revolution. You know, the tragedy of Iran is that if you uh, forget about the two or 3,000 ideologues who are on top, underneath we have the experts. We have good engineers, we have good economists within the present uh, system. But and they uh, prepare plans, they offer it, nobody listens uh, to them at all. You know, so the... the then there is uh, the uh, question of uh, injecting uh, uh, more money into uh, a kind of moribund uh, economy in, in Khuzestan. 
um, uh, paying the, the wages of Hafta, uh, Tape, uh, cane sugar complex so that you know they don't go on a strike all the time and they produce, uh, reviving the agro-industrial um, uh, projects that had been closed down because they were producing food that were sold, for example, in London or, I don't know, in Paris or wherever. You know, this is really ide- ideological blindness. If you leave aside the ideological blindness, whose stone is a pot of gold. You know, you put $1, you come out with $10. Mm. A final question to you with respect to h- how you see this as a possible tipping point or not uh, in terms of change in Iran. You know, I... You've seen so much. You were there in the in the seventies, and you were there at the at the revolution. And then uh, you would know that many of us in the diaspora are used to the conversation. Whenever there's um, there's protest and there's a, an appetite for change, whether it was hash to hash, the two thousand and nine dispute uh, mock election there that uh, that brought people into the streets in the green movement, or more recently the Aban protests, or after flight seven five two, there is this feeling Navi Dafkhari. There's always a feeling like okay, well, this is the time that is going to lead to um, significant change in Iran because people are finally fed up and and they can't take it anymore. Where do you think this latest uh, set of protests fits in that spectrum? Well, you know, although I come from the Middle East, but I don't uh, uh, pretend to be a prophet. But what I can see is that uh, um, you know, I've always put five conditions for regime change in any country. And of these five conditions, uh, uh, at least three of them are uh, present in Iran today. And we are on the way to uh, achieving the two others, too. So this regime is moribund. You know, it is like a zombie. You know, uh, I, I don't know whether it will fall tomorrow or the day after tomorrow, but for practical reasons, uh, it's already dead. You know, it can't do anything. It cannot uh, uh, change the Iranian society. The Iranian society is uh, a very active, dynamic, modern, uh, as, uh, aspiring society and doesn't care about uh, the dominant ideology. So there is this uh, big break between uh, Iran as a nation state and Iran as a vehicle for ideology. So. Um, the, the struggle will continue. There, there, something is uh, completely broken and uh, cannot be mended again. So uh, we'll have to see. You know, the, the important thing about uh, the current uh, um, uh, protests, uh, there are two important things. First of all, that they, are, they have spread to many parts of the country. Uh, almost 100 uh, towns and cities uh, are participating in one way or another, and secondly, that they are becoming political. You know, they, they started, of course, with uh, socioeconomic grievances or tangible uh, issues, but now they have become uh, political, and there is the, the talk of regime change is spreading uh, throughout Iran. I mean, Tahiri, is, it is a, an education talking to you. I thank you very much for this today. The pleasure is mine. Have a good night. Khudafiz. Khudafiz. Amir Tahiri, writer, journalist, editor, uh, who was the editor-in-chief of Kehan in Iran from 1972 to 1979. He's also the author of 13 books. We reached Amir Tahiri in Paris, France today. Let's get the microphones back on for Shaya, uh, Shaya and Captain Reza. 
Uh, well, that's been um, a lot of information for the last hour and a half. And, and uh, uh, I really appreciate uh, both these guests and the, the, the way Kaveh Madani took us through the steps of um, of the water function and dysfunction in Iran. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Amir, a little bit more pointed in terms of the political, the ideological reasons behind what's been happening. Yeah, I mean, I can feel hope in Kaveh's voice, yeah. uh, although... Uh, it Even though everything he's saying is depressing. Yes, yeah. yes, but I feel hope in his voice, and I, I, I hope the hope in his voice comes true. Mm. Yeah, but you know, Kaveh is a realist, and it's because he's a scientist as well. And when he was the example he gave us when he was talking about, um, he said, "Well, CN Tower, you live in Toronto. CN Tower is an amazing architecture, and uh, and you guys can be proud of it." But essentially, what he's trying to say, if you don't know how to manage it, if there is no proper management, yeah. there is no use. You can be proud of all dams you have. Yeah. Well, and also, what good is it? What good is it? <laughs> yeah, so yeah. True. What, what, what does so, the CN so Tower true. really do for you? <laughs> so, oh, that's so true. That is so true. I'm focusing a lot of my anger not on Khuzestan, but the CN Tower. All of a sudden. <laughs> it's become the uh, source of my. Source of all problems. <laughs> uh, I really also appreciated Amir Tahiri talking about Khuzestan. Yeah, you know, despite the fact that I have family from there and even some extended family still in the still in Ahvaz. Um, I, I didn't really know that. I mean, I've sort of heard bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. You know, Abadan was this mm-hmm. hot center of action and yes. culture. And, but that really Khuzestan was a happening place. Like the young people were going there. And yes. it was a, really the, the burgeoning new place in the 60s and 70s. Um, because it's not necessarily thought that way. Now, despite the resource, despite it being resource rich, it's not thought of as the hipster place, you know. <laughs> No, as soon as I think the 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 Brits or the United the the Americans like they took the the refinery out, everything kind of fell apart. I mean, after the revolution, shortly after. But before that, my mom used to say that she she used to be like Amrikaye Dovombud Abadan. It was the second yeah. America, like it was the hot place. You would go yeah. there for vacation and everything. It's sad. It's really a sad state. Yeah, I told at the previous episode that Mr. Ellington played in. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, Duke Ellington. <laughs> what did you say? What did you say? You made a mistake. Saying Duke Eglinton. Shia speaks in uh, since he's been taking the subway in Toronto. <laughs> he only knows subway stops now. Duke Eglinton. Uh, listen, a shout out to Arash and Anita Fazalipur, who are the founders of MyTerms.ca, a successful mortgage company in Ontario, Canada. They believe in educating their clients to understand every aspect of the financing being obtained. And they see each transaction through from the beginning to the end to make sure that they are closed with ease. If you're looking for a mortgage in the Toronto or greater Ontario region, go to MyTerms.ca. MyTerms.ca, they are among the best. And both Arash and Anita make it a priority to give back to the Persian community. We thank them for that. Big thanks to them and myterms.ca. All right. Lots coming up in the coming days on Rook. Dr. Sheila Nazarian, uh, Ali Parsa, Hamid Saidi, Tara Tiba, and lots more. This is full time for Rook for today. Remember, for all things Rook, including becoming a patron of our program and supporting us for five or ten dollars a month, go to rookmedia.com. See all the fancy pictures and drawings and press the red support us button as well. Rookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. 
Savvy Roham, Super Patty Saw, Sponsorship Sean, The Fabulous Keon, Thoughtful Nagin, Ponce of the Artist, Producer Susan, Aray Merdod, Captain Reza and Groovy Shia. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you have not done so already. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. In the meantime, Mizun Bashim.